<laughs> good morning. Oh, it's so good to see all of you today. So good. The way that the morning is going to flow is we're going to do our disciplines first, and it just works better after the disciplines if we take our break. Um, that said, if you need to get up at any time after we've had our break, you won't offend me at all. Just promise me you will come back, okay? So let's go ahead and get started. So you know what we do every time we're together. We turn those binders over, and we talk about our purpose. We talk about our disciplines. We always want that to be in front of us. So let's go ahead and look at... Um, Discipline one and our purpose. And we're going to do something a little different today. Um, We're actually going to fill in the blanks in a moment. So hang on and get your pens out and we're going to start. But if I were to ask you, if I were to ask what your heart needs more than anything, what would you say? The gospel, right. The word, right. We've been in Wellspring long enough that answer probably pops in to your head pretty quickly. The thing that we need more than anything, the thing that our heart needs more than anything is for us to meet with God, right? With the God of the word. See, a godly woman understands the condition of her heart and she loves God. And she wants her heart to come into full contact with the word. She wants to meet with him. And that's what our disciplines are all about. That's what discipline one is all about. And that makes the difference between someone who just shows up to church on Sunday and someone who meets regularly with God and pours his word into her heart. Um, Because that kind of person has a lot to say has a lot to pour into the lives of others. And I know you want to be that kind of woman. I want to be that kind of woman. So we're called to be godly women, right? We're called to know that we need to bring our hearts before the Lord. And that's why we say that every single time that we get together. So with that in mind, ladies, let's go ahead and um, look at at what we have written here. Let's look at our purpose first of all. It says to equip, encourage, blank. What are you going to put in that blank? We're going to make it personal. So we're going to say me. To Our purpose is to equip and encourage me to shepherd my heart toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. So that what? I live a gospel-transformed life, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. All right? What about discipline one? We always used to say the heart, but now let's make it personal. So what shall we write? My, my heart, right? I prayerfully shepherd my heart toward God and the gospel. I'm sorry, toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And then there's discipline too. My home. I minister to those in my household 
with my heart for God and the gospel. You know, when you step into a person's life or when you step into a person's home like that, there's an aroma of Christ in that home. It's a place where people are loved, where people are encouraged with the truth of the word, with the truth of the gospel, with all that Christ has done on the cross. Friends, and this it doesn't matter what your living condition is, if you're all by yourself or if you have a house full of people. You know, it doesn't matter. You can be the kind of woman whose home reflects the gospel, and that's encouraging. You can have an impact on others. You can have an impact on others as they see your heart, right? As they see what the gospel's done to your life and the way that you love others. Right, so let's look at discipline three, the ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling my ministry within my household, I step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So you see, this woman is now equipped to effectively step into people's lives, believers and non-believers, with the gospel of Christ wherever she goes. And that's why we always need to start with discipline one. And we need to say to ourselves, I need to be a woman who shepherds my heart. Okay, that kind of woman has something to say to others. And so we know we want to be that kind of women. So let me ask you, to what degree is this actually happening in each of our lives on a daily basis? I want you to think for a minute, where can you be encouraged and where can you improve? What should I start doing or what should I stop doing with the word of with the word of God so that it has prominence, so that it has dominance in my life? Hmm. So let's do a little exercise now. We filled in the blanks. Let's read these to each other. Let's read it out loud to each other, shall we? Let's start with our wellspring purpose, then we'll just go right on through the disciplines. Let's hear each other say it. Let's begin. Purpose. To equip and encourage me to shepherd my heart toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that I live a gospel transformed life, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Discipline one. My heart. I prayerfully shepherd my heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Discipline two, my home. I minister to those in my household with my heart for God and the gospel. Discipline three, ministry. With the heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling my ministry within my household, I step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Wow, does that make a difference? A little bit, doesn't it? See, if we're going to be women who are useful for the kingdom, living gospel-transformed lives, we will be women who prioritize our lives and so that we do live out the disciplines only by God's grace, right? We can't do it on our own strength. And that's why my daily priority and your daily priority should be to center our lives around the word of God, right? So, thumbs up. 
if you're keeping up with your Bible reading plan, great. You know, keep it up, please. Don't stop. Keep going. But if you've gotten stuck or you're a little behind, you know what, ladies? Dust yourself off, pick yourself up, and get going. Today's a brand new day. And tomorrow's Sunday, a brand new week, right? Um, so please, get started, get going. Let's earnestly renew our commitment and just begin again. By spending time in the Word, you're hiding His Word in your heart so that it can guide you. It can be a lamp to your feet. It can be a light to your path, Psalm 119, 105. Okay, great. So we understand the importance of bringing our hearts before the Word daily. Now, this is important. How can we make sure we're allowing what we read in the Bible to make a lasting change in our lives? Okay, how? Exactly how can we handle the Word of God? Um, how can we handle this so that it is a light? A lamp. How can we do that? Well, we can benefit from doing inventory in this area. And I'm going to share something for us to think about. You know, in our daily lives, if we need to find out something, if we need to some information, I have a set of encyclopedias. I don't really go to them anymore, but do you do what I do? Do you get on your phone or get on your computer and look it up, Google search or look it up on Wikipedia? Now, do you have to read entire volume of encyclopedias or the whole Wikipedia? No, right? You just get what you're looking for and move on. You don't have to read everything. You just read that one article. Well, let me direct your attention to a quote that's on your outline. And this is a great quote about understanding the Bible, about making it clear what our mindset should be when we approach our Bible reading. And it's by Paul David Tripp from the book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And he says, that is how scripture differs from an encyclopedia, or in my case, the Wikipedia. When I use an encyclopedia, I do not need to read other articles to understand the one I am reading at the moment. One article has no connection to the other. There are no overarching themes. In the Bible, however, every passage is dependent on the whole. And the whole Bible is held together by interdependent themes that run through every passage like rebar, the steel rods that reinforce concrete. These themes give me a sense of identity, purpose, and direction that will fundamentally alter the way I think, desire, speak, act. Hmm, here's the sad thing though, ladies. The sad thing is that many of us are simply not biblical in the way we use the Bible. I thought that is so interesting statement for Mr. Tripp to make. And I thought, what does he mean by that? We're not biblical in the way we handle the Bible, so let's keep reading. Being biblical does not mean merely quoting words from its pages. Being truly biblical, what does it mean? It means that my counsel reflects what the entire Bible is about. And as an aside here, I just want to remind us that that's why the elders encourage us to read through the entire Bible in a year, not just hang out in those four or five favorite books that we have. 
We need to spend time in the entire Bible to see that rebar that's going all the way through. What is the Bible? What's it about? Let's keep reading. The Bible's a narrative, a story of redemption. Its chief character is Jesus Christ. He is the main theme of the narrative. He is revealed in every passage of the book. Lasting change begins when our identity and purpose and sense of direction are defined by God's story. Hmm. That gives us something to think about, right? The next time we're in his word. Well, I'd like you to tell you a story now that's designed to be an illustration on your notes. It says an illustration for discipline one, the heart, the relationship between the word of God and the God of the word. You're going to have to use your imagination here. Imagine, if you will, that you and I are driving up to the White Mountains to go cross-country skiing together, okay? We plan to spend the whole day skiing, and then we're going to spend the night in a cozy cabin in Pine Top with our families. So we notice that ours is the only car in the lot as we drive up to the trailhead. We get our skis, get all suited up, and we begin our adventure. How cool is that? We're the only ones on the trail today, right? The snow is pristine. Oh, and we're going to see a lot of animals. And the day is turning out to be wonderful. You and I are having a great time. We're enjoying the glorious scenery, the pristine conditions, the sparkly white snow. We look up and we see the pine branches and they're heavy with snow. And occasionally we see a squirrel or a chipmunk scampering up the tree. Oh, and we're talking about our Savior. We're enjoying each other's company. It's a great day. And now it's late afternoon and we've come to the end of the trail. Hooray. We're going to turn around and get home to that cozy cabin, right? We're exhausted, but you know, we're happy. We're thinking about the hot chocolate and the fun time we'll have with our families tonight. But suddenly, and without warning, as sometimes happens in the mountains, the weather turns on us. The dark storm clouds are being pushed by the raging wind right up to us. And it's difficult for us to move forward. You know, we have to keep our heads down. We're not even really looking where we're going. We're just trudging through. And those angry clouds release their load, and they're just dumping inches after inches of snow on us. And that wind, it's unrelenting, right? It's whipping up the, the snow, and it's like, hard ice crystals and it's whipping up into our faces stinging our red cheeks instead of being warm by the cozy fire we're walking around now for hours trying to find our way back to the car but you know what nothing we do nowhere we turn is helping getting us any closer to that car Uh uh-oh now the sun is down it's dark and we're shivering cold And we've lost all sense of direction. You and I realize, oh my gosh, we are in trouble. Our toes are starting to go numb. Our fingers are turning to ice. And we're we're talking, we're discussing our options. We say, oh my goodness, we're so exhausted. So should we keep going? Should we stay here? Well, how soon will it be till our families discover we're gone? Will they ever find us? Hmm. Should we dig a cave out of the snow, hunker down, wait 
spend the night? Will we survive the night? Yikes, was that a wolf I just heard? Oh, it takes no time for us to agree upon one thing quickly. We should not keep going because every step we take leads us farther off the trail, farther from where we should be, and closer to danger. Hmm. Now let me ask you, how important is it at this point for us to be rescued? Yeah, very important, right? Within a few hours, or I mean a few hours ago, we were enjoying the beautiful scenery, the gorgeous pine needles, everything was wonderful, and now we only have one focus, and that's being rescued. That's our one goal. It's no laughing matter. It's serious. It's become a matter of life and death. Well, now it's pitch dark, and you decide you're going to just dig a little snow cave for us so that we can huddle together in it and try to keep warm. And suddenly, I look at you and you're very perplexed. And you're looking at me because you notice a glow of light coming from my right hand. What is that? What are you doing, you ask me? Oh, it's nothing. It's, it's just my iPhone, I reply through chattering teeth. Oh, I thought I'd play a quick game of Scrabble, listen to some i65 while we decide what to do. Hey pretty crazy. Isn't that pretty crazy? All right, so let's review our predicament. We have no food. Our clothes are all wet from the snow. Our feet are beginning to get frostbite. And the whole time I have my cell phone with me and it has great reception. Hmm. Well, how important, how important is that phone to us? Wouldn't you say it's huge? It's because it's the one means to the one end that you and I must have, right? That phone puts us in contact with our rescuer. We need to protect it at all costs, value it, cherish it. Don't put it down and forget it, and certainly don't play a game or listen to music on it. We need to protect it. It's the one means to the one end to our rescuer. But listen carefully here to me, please. Sometimes, when something is really important, you know what we do? We forget the goal. We forget that it's not the goal itself. You understand what I'm saying? Let me repeat that. Sometimes when something is really important, we forget it's not the goal itself. This is what happens in my story when I use my iPhone to play a game and to start listening to music instead of contacting my rescuer. It's ridiculous to play with the phone and never use it to interact with our rescuer. It's foolish. And that's what we do. Hmm. Are you hearing me? That's what we do when we read the word of God in the way that we aren't interacting with the God of the word. It's like being in a blizzard, listening to music on the phone, but not calling our rescuer. It's not okay for us to come to the Word of God to get the right answers and to know more, but not to meet with God. Do you see the difference? We must shepherd our hearts out of that kind of thinking. Hmm. The Word of God is precious, but it's not our ultimate goal. God is. So discipline one is all about our heart getting near to its rescuer 
its deliverer, its savior. How about you? Do you come to the word of God to meet with the God of the word? Do you cherish your time with your precious and mighty savior? Do you cherish it? What must your one goal be? What must your one goal be? To know God. Yeah. And so the Bible is very precious to us because it's our one means to our one goal. We must not neglect God's word like I neglected and misused my iPhone. Rather, ladies, we must cherish it. We must honor it. We love it. Because it's how we draw near to our rescuer, Jesus. At Grace Bible Church, we want to be known as women who are all about the word. That's good. But, but if we leave it there, we've fallen short. (sighs) Pretty heavy stuff, right? So let's be more concerned about women, about being women who know the God of the word. Let's do that. I'd like to pray for us, and then I'd like us to take a little break, and we'll come back. Lord God, how foolish we are sometimes to just sit down quickly, get through the reading, and move on because we know we're supposed to do it, and we do it. And Lord, to completely miss you. Help us, Lord, to repent from that kind of thinking and to know, Lord, that we are in a desperate situation. We need you. You have saved us. You've given us the means to know you, to know who you are, to look on you and to learn from you, and that is your word. Lord, may it become precious, precious to us as we know that you reveal yourself in that word every single day day through every single page. May we come joyfully to your word, expecting to receive from our Heavenly Father who loves us and who withholds no good thing from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here comes another story. On the night of April 14th, 1912, this is a true story. It was the third day of the Titanic's maiden voyage. It was numbingly cold. The water's temperature, it hovered around 28 degrees Fahrenheit. You know what? Around noon that day, the Titanic's wireless operators received the first of at least four there were at least four cautionary warnings about large ice flows that were ahead. Then the second message came about 5.35 p.m. from a large ship that reported three icebergs just 19 miles north of Titanic's path. And then just one hour before the collision at 11.40 p.m., there was a vessel named the Californian, and it messaged the Titanic. And it said, we're stopped, and we're surrounded by ice. And do you know what the response 
from the Titanic was? Shut up. I'm busy. I found that on Wikipedia. (laughs) The threat of ice, it was brushed off. It wasn't just the operator who was discouraged or who, I'm sorry, who discounted the danger. Captain Smith, he also was unconcerned about the icebergs. After all, you know, Titanic, solid steel, unsinkable. You know what his only concern was? It was shattering the speed records that were set by the other ships. There was a man named Frederick Fleet, and he was in the observation port, and he was nearing the end of his shift when he spied that iceberg, and he sounded the alarm, and he called down to the bridge. So the first officer, William Murdoch, he shut off all the engines, and he dropped the watertight doors in the bottom compartments, and he turned the ship away from its forward front end, and the iceberg hit the side. He reacted as well as he could in the face of danger, but the Titanic didn't have enough time to make a complete stop or turn away from the iceberg. You know, to do that, it would have required half a mile for the ship to stop. That's because it just was going too fast. And the iceberg loomed closely. Now it was only 900 feet from the ship. And for a few minutes, everyone held their breath. And it, it seemed like that maneuver, it might have worked. And from the surface, it looked like the ship did miss the iceberg. Whew, right? But what happened underneath? Underneath, a protruding fragment of ice ripped a hole in the Titanic's hull. It was nearly 300 feet wide. Can you picture that? Here's what happened to that that hasty navigation. It actually steered the ship from the sturdiest place to withstand impact to the most vulnerable place. And even the smallest gash caused catastrophic results. In an hour and a half, that giant ship would slip to the watery bottom of the Atlantic. Ladies, what is it about icebergs that makes them so dangerous? You know, is it the part you can see? Or is it the part you can't see? You know, it's the part you can't see. Do you know that there's 90% of the iceberg is actually under the surface of the water? You can only see 10%. And that 90% that you can't see, you really don't know how deep it is or how wide it is. You have no idea really to know what's beneath the surface of that water. You've all heard the expression, right, the tip of the iceberg, we've heard, even on the way driving here today, I heard it on the radio. Um, It's a problem. What it means is, is a problem or difficulty that is only a small manifestation of a much larger problem. So sisters in Christ, this is exactly what the lesson today is going to be about. Today's lesson, we're going to learn how we must not ignore the tip of the iceberg in our own lives. We're going to learn that the tip of the iceberg is helpful. 
it can help us identify the dangerous elements that are lurking underneath so that we can steer clear, steer away from them and steer ourselves towards Christ. This morning, we're going to look specifically at what the Word of God has to say about a prideful heart. And we're going to learn how to identify the danger to which pride exposes the heart, how pride can damage us. And here's the thing, it doesn't only damage us, it damages those around us. Do you think of yourself as a prideful person? At first glance, I don't think of myself that way. Now, don't get me wrong. I know I'm a prideful person. It's just not the first thing I think about when I think of myself. How about you? How good are you at spotting pride? Can you identify it when you see it? Even as we begin this lesson, we all have some idea popping in our head, right, about what pride looks like. You know why? We see pride all the time. In others, it's easy. It's a lot easier to spot pride in others than it is in ourselves. You know what another thing about pride is? It's a lot easier to identify than it is to actually define what it is. That's because we're experts at identifying sin in terms of others in terms that carefully exclude ourselves, right? That's why in Wellspring, that's why we review the condition of our heart so often. Remember, our hearts, what are they? They're prone to what? Deceive. And they're prone to being deceived. So here's our dilemma. Hmm, what a dilemma. We know that we have to watch out for that kind of wrong thinking. We know that. But just because we've been warned, just because we've been warned, it doesn't mean we're always going to heed the warnings. Hey, just like the captain of the Titanic. Right? I'm busy. Now, I know we want to avert that kind of tragedy. So please, let's do everything we can to focus and to learn and to take in the rest of the lesson. See, God is very vocal. God is very concerned about pride in our hearts. So we're going to look at his concern. We're going to be on number two in our outline. It's the danger pride exposes the heart to. We're going to see nine verses today. We're going to begin with Deuteronomy, and we're going to end in Philippians. And it looks like on your outline like there are really ten, but one of them is repeated twice. So we're going to be looking at nine. And we're not just going to be reading our verses together, ladies. We're going to be hamming it up, okay? I like to ham it up. What does ham stand for? How? How about me? So we're going to make an application every time we read the Bible verses so that we can apply it to our own hearts. Because we want to make sure that we're applying the truth to ourselves instead of thinking, oh man, I wish my friend were here to hear that. She really needs it. No, we're going to apply it to ourselves. So let's begin. Let's begin with Deuteronomy 14. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. And this is Moses giving instructions regarding Israel's future king. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 18. 
verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. Okay, who's going to write this? He is the king. Okay, the king we're talking about. A copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Verse 19. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Now here's verse 20. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Right, so let's review. What is he to do? What is the king to do? To write. That's right, Laurie. He's to write a copy of the law himself, and he doesn't do it in private. It's to be done. It's to be done in the priest's presence, and he is to read it all the days of his life. Why? So he'll learn to fear the Lord through obedience. He learns to fear through obedience. Well, what's the benefit of doing this? See, the word is going to prevent him from doing something, from lifting his heart above the others in arrogance, in pride, from thinking, well, I'm the king and I'm better than the rest of you. He needs the word, but where does he need it? In his heart, close to his heart. Why? so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else has to live by. See, he needs to remember that he has to live by the same standard. The king of Israel, the great king, he has to be on the same level ground as everyone else. And what's going to do that leveling? God's law, right? God's word. God's revelation of himself. See, it's the word of God, not his own trying to do it himself. It's the word of God that will prevent him from lifting his heart high above the others. All right, let's do our first ham application. Our first how about me. Do you you realize that you, that I, that all of us, we have a tendency to exempt ourselves from the same standard that is placed on all of us? I'm the mom, right? As if that's, there's some kind of exemption for us. Do we realize that the one thing that prevents us from lifting our hearts above the others is the Word of God, right? What we need to continually expose our lives to is the word of God. But where? Full frontal contact, right? At a heart level. Continually. So please don't miss that. The great leveler of all of us is this, the word of God. That's the great leveler. We're going to go to Proverbs next. Proverbs Chapter 16, 
verse 5. We're going to see what Solomon, Israel's third king, said about the heart. Proverbs 16, 5. Says everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Ladies, that's God's response to pride. Here is the king revealing to his son, who will be the next king, what God thinks about an arrogant heart. Everyone whose heart is proud is actually what? There's that big word, abomination. Now let's stop and think about that word because it's not the cute, abominable snowman in in, uh, Frosty, the snowman, right? Or in Rudolph, right? He's kind of cute. Abomination. What does it mean? Well, some of the synonyms I looked up are atrocity, repugnant, disgraceful, loathsome, disgusting. Knowing this, ladies, we're going to revisit that verse. It says, everyone who's proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. You could not state God's disapproval and reaction to arrogance of the heart more strongly, could you? God's response is not uncertain. It's not unclear, is it? He's not wishy-washy about it. Assuredly, they will not go unpunished. Hmm. How about me? This is heavy and so wonderful, but so heavy it makes me cry. As a Christian, this means that the Son of God, he was punished for my arrogance. Christ became an abomination, a disgrace, repugnant, loathsome, vile to God because of my arrogance. And so we need to preach those gospel realities to our heart. And we need to let them turn us away from pride, from arrogance, for which Christ suffered, for which Christ died. Next, going deeper. I'm going to go to Hosea, chapter 13. One of the minor prophets. You're going to find Daniel. When you find Daniel, the next book is Hosea. Here we read a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel at the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But now listen, ladies, what happens in verse 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. 
and being satisfied, they became proud. What happened? Therefore, they forgot me. And you know what? He even warned them against that. We did that in our homework. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. How about me? Do I really see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Do I really see it? Do I really remember that a prideful heart leads to forgetfulness? You know, it's a certain kind of forgetfulness. I wish it were that I'd forget about me, but it's not self-forgetfulness. Do you know what it is? It's divine forgetfulness. It's forgetting about God. We forget God. None of us is exempt from that. Hmm. You see, there's inherent danger in our satisfaction of being comfortable. Don't we all pray for comfort? But there's danger in that. With having God's provision, with being blessed, with being satisfied with life. Wow. Watch out. You have to watch out for your heart at that moment when things are great because that's when the heart becomes proud and that's when we forget God. And don't be fooled into thinking, oh, you know what? Uh, That could never happen to me because none of us are exempt, friends. There's not a day that we don't have to watch for it. How about you? How about me? It's easy to cry out to God when things are hard, right? With our finances, with our health, in our relationships. (laughs) Because it's easy. We need the Lord. We can see that. But what can we do? What can you do? What can I do? To be just as intentional when we're comfortable. Well, it's what we've been talking a lot about all year long, right? We've got to bring our hearts before the Word of God because God is the only one who can keep us mindful of our constant ongoing need for himself. He's the only one who can do it. But how does he do it? Through his word. That's how he does it. So in Hosea 13, we saw one way pride might show up in our hearts. We forget God. Of course, we don't like to call it that. Certainly, we don't forget God, right? We just get busy. Well, what? We might use busyness as an excuse. You know, we we clean it up a bit. We make it sound less offensive. We give it another name. We use the excuse of busyness for forgetting God, for not meeting with God in his word, for not praying. Now, when we do that, do we call it pride? You know, we should. Because that's exactly what it is, no matter what we call it. So I'm going to write the word busy up here, because that is an evidence 
going on underneath. P-R-I-D-E, pride. That's what's going on underneath. You see, it's easy for us to tell each other that we had a hard week. And we may have had a hard week. And that's why we didn't meet with God in his word constantly. Have you ever heard anyone say, I struggled with arrogant pride this week and I forgot God. No, right? (laughs) It's true, though. That's what happened. Do you remember that iceberg, right? You only see 10% sticking up out of the water. You can be certain of one thing. A large percentage is lurking underneath the water. And that part is even more dangerous than the part you do see. It's dangerous because... You don't really know exactly how deep it goes or how wide it is under the surface. But this is what you do know. That it's sustaining and it's supporting the entire part that you do see. See, that's the pride. That's what's the part that's so tricky about rooting out pride. Because pride wears a lot of different faces, let's call it. There are a lot of depths and a lot of layers to it. And you have to be ready to dive under the surface when you see little things like busyness or whatever popping up. Because that's when you need to go, "Uh uh-oh, that's just a symptom. Let me go down and let me identify the real thing. Right? So let's examine this a little further, shall we? In the case of the woman who's neglecting her time in the Word and in prayer, okay, The tip of the iceberg, the visible sin, is I'm too busy. Let's go down a little further. And we see she's forgetting God, right? If you go down further still, that's the root. That's pride. In essence, that woman, here's what she's doing. Get this. She's operating from a belief that she knows better than God what she needs to be doing with her time and with her priorities. Did you hear me? That woman, she doesn't truly believe that what's in her heart's best interest is feasting on God's word. Hmm. That woman, she thinks she's immune to danger. She thinks she can handle life on her own without spending time with her creator today. I'll do it tomorrow. I'm fine. What about me? What about you, Pam? You and I might not always recognize what's going on beneath the visible sin. We don't always recognize it. Remember, our hearts are deceivers. What's dangerously lurking underneath It's the sin of pride, my friends. It's pride. All right, let's look at some of the faces of pride. We saw one so that we can better understand how to do battle with the sin of pride. We're going to go now to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Verse 1. 
we're going to learn about a king named Isaiah. Second Chronicles 26. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to skip around a bit. Verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Verse 4. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So as long as King Uzziah, what, continued to seek God, God prospered him. Let's go on to verses 16 through 6 through 15. You can kind of skim that. Um, it describes all the various achievements and victories. And it tells us all about it. Verse 6 or verse 7 says God helped him. And then go to verse 15, B. It says, Hence his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. Well, by whom? Verse 7 tells us, right? God helped him until he was strong. Why was he successful? It was God, right? He was marvelously helped by God. And what happened? He became strong, right? Verse 16. When he became strong, his heart became proud. His heart was so proud. Remember, ladies, pride is from the overflow of the heart. It's the same danger that we saw in Deuteronomy and in Hosea. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. Look at verse 16. Hmm. Terrible. His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, now, at first blush, you might say, well, how is entering the temple of the Lord a corrupt act? And how is that being unfaithful to the Lord? I mean, wasn't he, didn't he love the Lord and want to worship the Lord? Right? Man, he was really devoted. Well, let's not think what we think. Let's know what God thinks, okay? Very important to do. Let's continue reading verse 17. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him, Hey, he took a bunch of with him. He took 80 priests of the Lord, not wimpy men, valiant men. They opposed Isaiah the king, and they said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. For the priests, the sons of Aaron, who it is for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Isaiah was unfaithful because he overstepped the boundaries of authority that God had established. You see, service in the temple, it was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't his to take. Isaiah was not qualified to do it. How about you? How about me? Hmm. Am I ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to me? Are you tempted 
to work around your boss, your husband, maybe your parents. You just assume, oh, they'd be okay with us deciding for ourselves rather than humbly thinking, hmm, what would God want me to do in this situation? What would honor him? And then going to our husband, our boss, our teacher, our parents, maybe our small group leader or elder, and asking for their leadership, their permission, their guidance. See, maybe Isaiah thought, well, I'm the king, I'm entitled. I mean, the Lord hadn't taken any other privilege from him, so why shouldn't he take lead in worship too? But again, ladies, he wasn't entitled. Okay, we're still hamming it up, right? So we need to ask ourselves always, do I ever do that? Hmm. You know what? It is so easy, ladies, right, for us to have that sense of entitlement. Like, uh, I'm entitled to something for me, some me time, some appreciation, some R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? Here's what helps me see it in my heart. It's how I react right here when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated or how I react right here when I experience a thoughtless act with the people I live with or how I react right here when somebody's rude to me, a customer, a clerk, or, man, that guy who took my parking place. Right? That's how I react. See, it could display itself in thinking when my husband walks in the door. I have been with those kids, your kids, all day. (laughs) Or in my case, the grandkids. Right? I'm entitled to some downtime. Or, you know, it's Friday night. I've worked hard all week. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I just want to chill. See, we live in a culture that says we deserve, and you fill in the blank. Um, So we get frustrated, right? Or disappointed or discouraged or in despair without peace. And we do that because... We've allowed our desires to become objects we think we deserve. Does this sound familiar? That lesson, the circles? Right. And finally, we turn those objects we think we deserve to things we demand. So it's important to realize that these symptoms are all just the tip of the iceberg. Right? So it's when we get frustrated. When we get frustrated, disappointed, etc., angry, lots of things you could put in there. You want me time. Me, 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 me. You're entitled. When you see those things, watch out. They're all evidences of pride. Okay, wait a minute. Full stop. How can being anxious, how can being discouraged, come on, how can that be a symptom of pride? That's just a regular emotion, isn't it? Come on. Well, because you know what it is? We think at that point we're really thinking that we're more important. What we want is more important than what God wants. That's why. What God, what God has called us to do, and you know what he's called us to do? 
die to ourselves and follow Christ. That's what he's called us to do. Hmm. Anytime we put ourselves first, what do we call it? Pride. We're to call it pride. Here's an important thing to see. And this is a great passage that shows how one sin can lead to another sin. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which can lead to overstepping our authority, which can lead to laziness. And if I had time, I'd write all those on there. Overstepping authority, laziness. And that's a bad thing. Hey, but on the side where we are fighting sin, here's the good news. Okay, some good news. Yay! If you can get to the root, if you can go right after that right sin, you might actually make ground in doing battle with those other sins. So you see, because sin is often tied to one another, see, one sin brings a friend, brings another friend. They're all tied to each other. We need to train ourselves, and we need to ask others to help us to make these connections to see the sin that's behind the sin, to see what's lurking underneath the surface, to see our hearts. Okay, we're going to look at another king now. Second Chronicles 32. And this is King Hezekiah. So now we're in Second Chronicles 32. Verses 24 through 26. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a, the NIV says, a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received the NIV says he respond he did not respond to the kindness shown him why because his heart was proud ooh there's another face of pride not responding to kindness to the kindness from God. That's important, to the kindness from God. Well, how might we fail to respond to the kindness of God? Do you know that Romans 2, 4 says, kindness of God leads us to repentance? Are you quick to repent? Or do you hate admitting sin? Do you ask for forgiveness when you sinned against someone? When your sin has affected someone else in some way? Or do we ignore it and think, oh, that happened yesterday. Everyone should just move on. You think, hey, well, my friend doesn't seem upset with me anymore, so why should I bring it up and make her upset all over again, right? Why should I do that now? It's kind of uncomfortable. So let's just move on. You know what that is? That's failure to repent to God's kindness. Go a little deeper. What is it? That's pride. Pride. So failure to repent is another one. 
We're going to um, look at the consequences of pride at the end of Second Chronicles 32. We're going to look at verse 25. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Wow. Hezekiah's prideful heart didn't only affect him. It affected everyone, just like the captain of the Titanic. You know that captain? He repeatedly dismissed those warnings, right? Over and over. And look what happened. The impact of his decision. The ship started sinking and over 1,500 people drowned that night. Hmm. Well, what about us? I have to look inward. What about us? Do we recognize the impact that our sin will have on others? That they may experience the consequences of our sin? You know, here's some good news though. Verse 26. Let's get some encouragement. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who humbled his heart? Hezekiah. You know what? Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Wow, gives us some encouragement, doesn't it? That God was willing to turn back from his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope for believers, for us who live after the cross, is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath on our pride. And he gave us a new heart, so that we can repent of pride. Let's recap. We've been learning how to identify pride right at the root of the iceberg by noticing some of the ways that it manifests itself at the tip of the iceberg. These are some of the ways pride can get its foot in the door of our hearts. And if you have it, if you want to draw that picture, you can, and you can write some of these things that I didn't write down not staying within our authority, entitlement, laziness, not responding to God's kindness. I said that. Not repenting of sin. Here's some more. Complaining. Discontentment. Tempting us to forget God, often through blessings. Remember, we saw that again. We looked ahead and we saw what God said in Deuteronomy 8. Okay, we're going to keep going. We're going to see another face of pride, one just as serious. We're going to go to a little book called Obadiah. Hope you can find it in the crispy white pages, right, of your Bible. Obadiah. Your um, notes do not list the um, chapter. It's chapter 1. Sorry, I forgot to write that in. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're going to learn the prophecy against the country of Edom. Let me tell you a little bit about Edom as you're finding it. The Edomites had an imposing, impregnable city. It was called Petra. And it was high up in the mountains. There were deep, terrifying gorges emanating from the peaks that reached almost, picture this, 6,000 feet. And here, here she sits, way up there. She was like a fortress. And so that gave her a real false sense of security. All right, let's see what God says to these people. We're in Obadiah, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? All right, what caused their deception, friends? Arrogance, right? The arrogance of their heart. Remember, remember, the heart is easily deceived, and it is an excellent, the most excellent deceiver. Okay, now to add to that, pride in the heart, right? Add to that, all that, that it's a deceiver. You add pride in there, and we get deceived even further. Let's look at how deceived those Edomites were. Okay, what does God say? He says, he's going to bring them down. God says that, what do they say? They persist in their self-confidence, right? In their self-reliance. They say, who will bring me down to earth? Here's proof of an arrogant heart, a deceived heart. (laughs) Believing your own opinion. Do you do that? And refusing to believe God's word. Okay, how about me? How could this show up in our hearts? Do you know what the scary part is? It can show up in our prayer lives. Okay, so why do I bring up prayer? Prayer, a good thing, right? When I'm warning at the deceptiveness of an arrogant heart. It's important we understand this. You know what? There's a right way to use prayer. Prayer is an amazing gift that God has given us. It's a time we can draw near to the creator of the universe. So I'm not talking about a prideful heart that's been broken. I'm not talking about that because that should be all of us. I'm not talking about a heart that's coming in repentance to confess pride. No. Here's what I mean. I mean a prideful heart that's not repentant. A heart that might pray, yeah, but it doesn't humble itself before God. It doesn't examine itself before the God of the Word. And it doesn't want wise counsel. Now, if I pray about a decision I need to make when I'm in that condition, when I have unrepentant pride in my heart, I could very well deceive myself. I could come away from prayer and I could convince myself that what I actually want is God's leading, even if it's contrary to his word. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, that's what the Edomites did. Here's what God said. He was going to make them small. They believed God? No. They believed themselves. They said, hmm, we live up on these pretty steep, pretty impressive cliffs, right? We're sturdy. No one's going to bring us down. No one. They didn't believe God. You see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Because if I convince myself in prayer to do what I really wanted to do in the first place, it's going to become very hard for you to challenge me. So if one of you comes up to me and you have concerns about my decision and you ask me really good questions and you raise biblical principles, I might try to shut you down. I might say, I prayed about it. 
understand the point, please. There are plenty of times when we say we've prayed, and we have prayed, right, in a very humble, very biblical way. Let's hope all things for each other. And when that's the case, we probably will be open to questions and biblical considerations that others have for us. But let's be careful how we ourselves pray before we make decisions. Okay, take yourself off the table, right? Ask God, ask others to help us see where we might be deceiving ourselves because can we see it? No. Friends, we must remember that deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to do battle with. Because the nature of deception is that it's deceptive. We cannot see it. The only way to battle a foe you can't see is with truth. That's the only way. The truth of what? God's word. There's protection in shepherding our hearts with God's word. And being concerned with helping another shepherd her heart as well. So in order to do battle with pride, here's what we can pray. This is a good prayer to pray. Lord, show me where I'm arrogant, where I'm prone to a sense of entitlement. And God, give me eyes to see. See, we need to ask God for this because, remember, it's easy for us to see pride in others, right? We don't see our own pride. That's the effect sin has in us. It blinds us to our own pride and it makes us see it very well in someone else. So just to make sure we're defining pride correctly and we're seeing our own pride, I'm going to ask you a few questions and you got a handout. Um, this is has 41 questions of pride, 41 evidences of pride. We're not going to look at all 41. I think we'd be crying on the floor if we did. We're only going to look at a few. Um, this is a really helpful resource. We've used it for years. You can see where it came from, but we really don't know much about this ministry. So if you decide to go on the website, just please be a Berean, okay? Measure what you find by God's word. So I'm going to shout out a few of them. Just a few, and you can on your own read all 41. How about number three? Do you have a judgmental spirit to those who don't make the same lifestyle choices as you? Dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards, etc.? Number four, are you quick to find fault in others? Number six, do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance? Hair, makeup, clothing, Weight, body shape, avoiding the appearance of aging, or are you proud you don't waste time on that? Are you Seven, are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you are able to accomplish, or are you proud of how laid back you are? What about number 17? Are you excessively shy? Number 18. Do you have a hard time reaching out and being friendly to people you don't know at church? Number 22, do you tend to be controlling? Hmm. 
Number 23, guilty, guilty. Do you frequently interrupt people when they're speaking? Hmm. Number 31, do you neglect prayer and the intake of the word? 39, is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, practical or spiritual? Number 41, are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone else you know? (laughs) Ouch, right? Has your picture of arrogant or proud changed since we started this lesson? Are you now a poster child for pride in your mind's eye? You know, we need to be reminded pride is something we all struggle with. But hang on, friends. Here comes the good news, right? Because just as there are many evidences of pride, there are also many evidences of the opposite of pride. What is that? Humility. Okay, how would we define humility? A.W. Tozer says the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life in himself nothing, in God everything. He knows that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. (laughs) Good one. William Law, here's another one. Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. Let's take a look at what God's word says about humility now. We're going to turn to 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. It says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God has opposed, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting, isn't it, that he says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Humility is something that has to be lived out in relationships. Left to myself, I am not going to see my need for humility. There are a lot of ways other people humble us, right? Lots of ways. Hmm. About like when we're criticized or when we're admonished or rebuked. See, it's easy to feel hurt, isn't it? Or misunderstood or get defensive. Hurt, misunderstood, defensive. I could write those down. Because what is that? Pride. Those are evidences of of pride. Right? The passage continues, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. And here he shows us how to humble ourselves, ladies. Verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care that he has for us. Do you know what pride does? Pride rejects God's care. C.J. Mahaney has a great book about humility, and in there he says, where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. Have you ever thought of it that way? Wow. These verses we just read connect pride with anxiety. There it is. So what's she said the verses we read connect pride with anxiety. Thank you, Laura. So the solution is to humble ourselves. Where? Under God's mighty hand. So 
when we need to humble ourselves before someone and confess our sin or when we're critical, here's the important thing you can do. Look beyond the person, okay? Look beyond the person to the mighty God who cares for you. See, he's the one you're humbling yourself to. He's the one who is at work with you, for you, in you, for your good. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes the gospel, and it leads us to have an accurate view of ourselves and our Savior. Okay. Not only will you have a humble heart that draws near to your Savior, but it also draws you near to one another. I'm not going to have you turn there, but Colossians 3, 12 through 14, just listen. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, see Paul starts with our gospel identity, put on a heart of compassion, humility. See, these are evidences of humility, compassion. If I were to draw another iceberg, I'd put humility under it. And these are the evidences. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. So please look up those verses on your own. They're great verses. But we're going to close with one of the best, our last verse, Philippians 2. This is the perfect passage to end with because it brings us right back to our Savior, the only place we can go to cultivate a humble heart. Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. There it is, ladies. There's humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen, ladies, to what this says about our Savior. Now, this is a really familiar passage, so let's be careful. Let's make sure it doesn't just go right past us because we've read it so many times. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Aren't we people who love to grasp, to take hold of what we want? But Jesus did not grasp. What did he do? Verse 7. He emptied himself, taking form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. A slave, ladies. Jesus took the form of a slave. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, you know, as if becoming a man wasn't enough. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is how we receive enabling grace. The grace to turn from pride to humility and love. Because Jesus himself on the cross bore away the penalty for our sin. And he broke its power over us. And he gave us new life in a love relationship with himself and with his people. And that is the power of the gospel. So to battle pride, we need to always be on the lookout for its many faces. And these, when we see them, we bring them to the cross, right? Uh Uh-oh, there's a face of pride. Bring it to the cross. These are the things 
for which Christ died. Let them go. Repent and follow him. That's how we humble ourselves. That's how we do it. We draw near to the cross where we find glorious hope. Hope for living with one another in unity and displaying the characters of humility, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't tell us to avoid pride and then leave us struggling, floundering. Lord, but you yourself were the perfect model of humility, and you show us how to do that. Lord, help us remember when we see all these evidences popping up, what it really is, what's really at the root is that We think we know better than you. No matter what you say, we think we know better. Please, Lord, help us avoid that. And please help us put on a heart of humility, a heart of repentance, a heart of love. And thank you that we can do that because of the gospel. The gospel. Thank you, God, for your glorious gospel. Thank you for becoming an abomination for us. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' holy, holy name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.